Hear now the word of God. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bacorath, son of Aphia, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. <clears throat> now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalashah, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalom, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. And when they came to the land of Zuth, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in the city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? His servant answered Saul again, Here I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul went to his servant. Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up the hill to the city, they met, a young, young, met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Now going to verse 15. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord spoke to him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for the donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then to the second half of verse 24. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Samuel on the roof up that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he has passed on, stop, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord 
and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And you shall be, and this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. Then to verse 9. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. And when we saw they were not found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths in our hearts this evening. Let's pray together. Lord, we are blessed and rich in the knowledge of you, but only because you've revealed yourself. And yet without you, your help, that knowledge cannot and would not penetrate our hearts. So would you help us to understand, help us to do more than gather information or knowledge Show your face to us. Help us to know Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Last week we were privy to Israel's rejection of God as their king. Uh, God will put it more starkly later on than he did last week, but ultimately that's what happened. God tells, there's a wasp that wants to sting me. Uh, That's not what God said. Uh, It was just, it's still on me. This is going to be an ongoing thing tonight. I, I kinda, I've come to terms with it. Um, but God, God told, tells Samuel, he says, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. Be- why, did he re- why did they reject God? Because he said they asked for a king like all the nations. And so the last thing that we saw in chapter 8 was God telling Samuel, uh, obey their voice and make them a king. And then immediately what happens? Immediately the writer turns to the new king and introduces us to him. And that's exactly what happens here. And so tonight's passage does a couple of things. For one, it introduces us to this new fellow who's going to be the king. It shows us what he's like. And and even as we're reading this, it's sort of an interesting narrative. It's almost humorous in in parts. And, And while I think I find it entertaining, at least, I hope you find sort of the bumbling adventures of future King Saul a a little interesting here. Um, But there's actually a lot of foreshadowing in this passage. You actually get a little bit of a glimpse of what kind of a man this is. Um, You know, think about what happened in the last chapter. God told them what a king would be like. He said, he'll take your children. He'll take your resources. He'll take your fields. He'll take your equipment. He'll take your food. And just so on. And in a way tonight, we start to see the character of the man who's going to do, the, to do those things. We start to see his character peeking through. But to see those character flaws that become so amplified later, 
you do have to see around the other more impressive aspects of this man. Um, There are things about him that seem like he'll be so amazing for Israel at first glance. And, And as with all appearances, sometimes it's very difficult to get over that. And so we see Saul in three ways in tonight's passage. First, we see him as the son of Kish. Second, we see him as the bad shepherd. And then third, we see him as the secret king. First tonight, we see Saul as the son of Kish. You see this in the first two verses. Before anything else happens, we're introduced and we're not introduced to Saul. We're introduced to Kish. And we find out that Saul comes from this family of Benjaminites. Now, I want to refresh you on sort of our history of judges, because you maybe remember in our judges series that these folks were there, right? This was the same tribe that was almost completely destroyed at the end of Judges. Remember, they they stood up for the tribe, the people of Gibeah, after they did this terrible sin against the Levite and his concubine. And the tribe of Benjamin, it was sort of their responsibility to punish Gibeah. And they refused to do it. And instead, they stood up for Gibeah. And if you remember the end of of Judges, Israel comes, surrounds Gibeah, surrounds Benjamin, and basically goes to war with Benjamin. And it is not a one-sided fight. Even though they're only one tribe, they put up a tremendous fight. They kill a lot of Israelites in the process. But eventually, they whittle down Benjamin until there's almost nothing left of these people. And at the very last minute, rather than doing what they should have done, what Scripture commanded them to, which was to remove the wickedness from among them, they chose to spare the people of Benjamin. And so what happens? Well, you have this small group of Benjaminites. They don't have any women or children anymore. And because Israel at the last second decides to have mercy on them, they they say, well, look, you'll have to go and steal uh, and kidnap women and take them as your wives. And that's exactly how the book of Judges ends. It ends with them kidnapping women for tribe of Benjamin. And so this is the tribe that Saul comes from. Very inauspicious background for a king, to be sure. And yet we all know know a few more things besides just the fact that he comes from the most controversial tribe, probably in all of Israel. We also know that his family is wealthy. The passage says that Kish was a man of wealth. Um, Saul's name means asked for. A very interesting name for somebody like Saul. Um, And this is ironic, right? Because as we'll see, God's choice of Saul as king is meant to be a way of God giving them what they asked for. Saul is what the people asked for, and that is his name. He was asked for. And remember, the the people of Israel wanted a king like all the nations, and that is what Saul is. Saul is really what the people asked for. Um, He has other things going for him. Uh, The author is at pains to, to let us know This is a good-looking man. In fact, the author kind of goes above and beyond to let us really get a picture of of his estimation of Saul. He says, There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So this guy is tall, dark, and handsome, right? In, In an Instagram world, this guy would have a lot of followers. He is the whole package, you know? And, you know, we might think 
that a preoccupation with looks, being distracted by the looks of a leader is something that's new today. But, you know, falling in love with a good-looking leader is a problem that was not invented by 20th century Westerners. This has been a worldwide issue. Um, Human beings have a nasty habit of getting sort of hung up on what they can see and, and many times just struggling to get beyond it. It's so easy to go, well, look, things look great. So they must be great. Or, you, or they might say, things look great. Uh, maybe he'll get better. Uh, th- he looks good. Maybe, maybe things will get even, even better than they already are. Uh, there's room to grow, right? Maybe you even give a good-looking person a little bit more of a benefit of the doubt. Uh, this is something that Israel sort of does with this man. Um, I spoke with someone, and this is something that can happen in church, by the way. This is something that can infect the church, this sort of desire for appearances, this desire or this inability to look beyond appearances. And what can happen is, even in the church, if we start to realize that people don't like when they see things that are unpleasant, then we start to learn to only present sort of a pleasant image to people. And this can create struggles for people in the church. I, I was talking with someone recently, and they, str- they told me that they struggle to go to church because everyone seems so happy, and everyone seems so perfect, and everyone's always smiling, and everyone, when you ask them how they're doing, they always say they're doing great. And this person didn't feel great. This person was really struggling. They said, I feel like a sinful failure, and I feel like nobody else in church is like that. And it's so easy to get caught up in presenting a good, healthy-looking image, you know, mainly because in our culture, it's sometimes even considered rude. If someone asks you how you're doing, it's sometimes considered rude to say anything but, I'm doing great. My life is fantastic. Please ask me more about how great my life is, and I will tell you, you know. But we need to care about the reality. We need to not care about good appearances. You know, if someone says something about their life and it isn't happy, don't make them feel bad for being honest with you. Actually, look at, it as a gift. look at it as a gift that they were truthful with you about themselves and about how they're doing and about how they're feeling. Um, be grateful that this person was willing to open up to you. So we need to resist the, the temptation to, to present good appearances. We need to pre- resist the temptation to, to judge by appearances. You know, oftentimes the person or, or the family that seems great is quietly falling apart on the inside. And so as a church, we need to be ready to love and embrace and pray for folks who just get tired of having a happy face. Saul has a happy face. Saul seems great. You would never think that this guy is actually a mess on the inside who will eventually lose his mind and start throwing spears at his harp players in the throne room, right? You wouldn't picture or even imagine that eventually things would come to that. Saul has everything going for him that doesn't matter. He has everything going for him that doesn't matter. He's a son of Kish. He's wealthy. He's handsome. He's young. And he has zero promise as a spiritual leader of Israel. Second tonight, we see Saul as the bad shepherd. Now, I mean this literally, and I mean it figuratively. Um, When we meet Saul... He's been searching for his father's donkeys. Um, he and his servant wander in about a 20-mile circuit, just sort of looking for these donkeys. Eventually, he, he shows up in the city where Samuel is. And, 
And Saul's servant looks at him and he says, maybe this seer who's in this city can help us. And if you notice this, Saul does not seem to even know about Samuel. He doesn't even seem to have a knowledge of Samuel. Uh, He doesn't know his name. He doesn't know he's there. He's not the one that thinks to ask the seer. Um, He doesn't even seem to know how prophecy works. At, At one point, he looks at his servant and says, but if we go, what can we bring the man? This exchange, he sort of indicates that he thinks that spiritual knowledge is something that he needs to to pay for. So look what happens, though. The passage starts off with this very common problem in the ancient world. Your animals go missing. This happened a lot, but it was the job of the shepherd to keep an eye on the flock. And this is a man who seems to be inept as a shepherd. I mean, uh, he lost donkeys, right? They lost donkeys, and he can't find Donkeys. Have you ever driven past a, a yard or, or a farm where there are donkeys? They are the loudest, most obnoxious animals in the world. Uh, they make the worst noises. Uh, they are just, they're slow, they're clumsy, they're noisy. No one's going to accuse them of sort of being camouflaged animals. They're, they're, they can't really hide. They're not masters of disguise. They're not... Chameleons. I, the fact that he completely is unable to find them and they end up being found by someone else, I do think speaks poorly to Saul as a shepherd. He is not exactly shepherd material. Uh, that's literal. But I would also suggest that this is true of him spiritually. For one thing, think about this. Saul is ignorant of Samuel His slave is not. His slave knows about Samuel. Samuel is the most famous person in all of Israel at this time. Now, it is to Saul's credit, he decides to seek God's direction. And I I think there's a lesson there for us as well. Uh, It shows us, in a sense, there's really nothing too trivial for us to take it to God. We can take trivial concerns to God. Our concerns, our prayers don't always have to be the big, giant issues of the day. God cares about our little worries. Peter reminds us, he says, cast your cares on him, for he cares for you. So it's good that Saul ends up seeking God's direction on this, but just keep in mind that it was not Saul's idea. There may be another mark as as well against Saul. It kind of seems like Saul has this assumption that spiritual grace is for sale, Um, This is sort of something that that people think of today. When people think of Christianity, when they think of religion, they really do oftentimes think of the church as a money-making racket. Um, You've seen in recent news about uh, different uh, pastors who have multi-million dollar mansions, many cars, uh, buying the favor of friends and uh, publishers of different magazines. And you see this, that that Saul seems to almost have this cynical perspective on what Samuel is doing. And in part, what we'll see is he, he has this perspective on Samuel because that's sort of the function that spirituality serves in Saul's life. If you look at Saul's life, and we'll notice this over and over again, the way that spirituality functions is its purpose is bringing others along and persuading them that he's legitimate. So, so this man is not suited to be a literal shepherd. He's not suited to be a spiritual shepherd. Think of some of the great figures in, in biblical history. 
And what you see is that not only were they shepherds, but they were good at their jobs. Think of Abraham, uh, someone who was a sojourner, someone who had large flocks, and his flocks continued to grow till he became immensely wealthy. Think of, of Isaac, think of Jacob, think of Moses. All of them were shepherds. Think of David, right? David was a good shepherd. We have record of times when he put his life on the line for his flock. And of course, we see that if, if there is a correlation between being a good shepherd and being a good leader, you see that in David's life. David ends up being an excellent king, especially compared to Saul. But I think when it comes to Saul, it's putting it nicely to say he is not shepherd material. And yet the thing that God's flock needs most is real shepherding, real spiritual leadership. Jesus says this to his flock. He says, I am the good shepherd. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And pastors and churches need to follow Jesus's lead on this. We are to be good shepherds as well. We're not supposed to be the good shepherd, but we're to be good shepherds. When you look at Paul's writings, and especially 1 Timothy, one of the greatest, most important qualifications that, that a people need to look for in a leader is spirituality. A spiritual leader who, Paul says, can shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And so shepherding is something that's important for the king of Israel. It's important for church leaders as well. And so the second thing that we see tonight, though, is that Saul is the bad shepherd. He's not a good shepherd. And third to tonight, we see Saul as the secret king. God tells Samuel that the future king is in the city and he's about to meet him. Now listen, I want you to hear how he, how he introduces this to Saul. And I'm going to just emphasize a couple of words that I want to really stand out to you. Listen to the way that he speaks about what, Samuel, or what Saul is going to do. He says, tomorrow about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw the Lord, saw Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. So just notice those two terms. He calls him a prince, and he says that his function will be to restrain the people. Now, everything about what God says here is interesting, because listen to what God says. He explains why he picks Saul. He says in verse 16, he picks him to have a prince over Israel to save my people from the Philistines. Now, the language here matters, and I want you to look closely at this. God makes Saul his temporary savior for Israel, and he functionally makes Saul king, but God never calls Saul king. Now, you'll sometimes see Samuel say that God made Saul king, but God directly himself never uses the word king to refer to Saul. He always dances around it. He always avoids using the word king here. Now, I know you're thinking, no, no, surely he says king somewhere in here. Well, I searched the entire book of Samuel, and the book never records God calling Saul king until after he rejects him. He never calls Saul king until after 
he rejects him. Now, it, it isn't that he wasn't the king, but it's almost as though God will not let that word cross his lips with regard to Saul. Instead, he calls him prince. He calls him commander over Israel. He never calls him king until after he rejects him. I think it's like God isn't willing to relinquish his role as the king over Israel. He, he calls Israel my people in verses 16 and 17. I mean, he's saying, these are my people, and I'm going to use this man as my commander, as my prince, but I am not going to call him king. One more really revealing moment is in verse 17. So God, I like, I like these verses because God is really telegraphing to Samuel what he's doing and what's going on here. And in verse 17, God says, he is who shall restrain my people. Now, I don't know which version of, of the Bible you're working with. Your version might translate that word as rule. Your version might say, he is who shall rule my people. But if you look at how the word in this passage in the Hebrew gets used in the Old Testament, you actually see that restrain is a better word. Sometimes the word even means imprison. In fact, the only time in the Old Testament when the word even could make sense translated as rule is right here. This is the only one where it's ambiguous, where it could be the word rule. And so I think if you, if you realize that, wow, this word is not used for rule. This is a word that means in prison. This is a word that means holding people back, restraining my people. I think that the word chosen by God here is very intentional. Saul is not going to rule Israel. He's going to hold them back. He's not going to take them forward. A king like all the nations is not going to be the sort of progressive blessing that they think he's going to be. And God is going to use Saul to display that for them. He's going to use, them, use Saul to show that to them. And, and so I think the idea here is, yes, Saul will liberate Israel from the Philistines, but he will also create sort of a new kind of prison for them as well. He's going to restrain them as well. So Saul is God's rescue from one trouble and he is their introduction to a new kind of trouble. The narrative spends a lot of time focusing on the anointing of Saul and of his journey back home. But there's, there's one interesting moment that happens near the end of chapter 10. As, as he turns to leave, the passage says Saul gets another heart. Now, we are not given the details. It's this moment where you say, what on earth is happening here? And we don't, we don't get the details, but then when he gets to Gibeah, and by the way, Gibeah, keep in mind, that is the place where the Levite and the concubine spent their last night on earth, at least the, the concubine did in the book of Judges. Gibeah is that town. And so he gets to Gibeah, he gets to this place where this immense wickedness happened at the end of Judges, and it says the Spirit of, the, of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And that's in chapter 10, verse 10. Now, how do we think about this? How do we think about a moment like this? One of the things I think many people assume is that if you have signs of spiritual vitality like this, you know, then this is a sign of true conversion. Um, they, they, they see these miraculous gifts as a sign of real heart change. Um, for example, in, in many churches, 
especially in Pentecostal churches, you aren't considered to be saved unless you show signs like this and unless you speak in tongues and so on. Um, I've told the story before, but you know the, the incident that led to me becoming an atheist as a young man and as a teenager was going to summer camp and hearing the gospel proclaimed and raising my hand saying, yes, I believe in Jesus. Yes, I want to be part of, of Christ. And I came forward and they would not be satisfied until they got me to speak in tongues, which they got me to do. I faked it. I faked tongues as a, as a kid. 12 years old, really wanting to be saved, really wanting to fit in. And I left that place and became an atheist after that because of just that realization that people should not have to fake themselves into an experience like this if God is real. Um, But there are churches where if you don't have those physical signs, if you don't have those spiritual signs, if you don't speak in tongues, if you don't prophesy or do something like that, then you're not saved. And yet I would suggest that even spiritual gifts like this are not a surefire sign of conversion. I I don't think what happens here is Saul converting to Christ the way we think of conversion. What happens here to Saul, I think, is is more akin to a momentary gift. Uh, We see this with Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel, right? In in the book of, of Daniel, God spoke through Nebuchadnezzar prophesied through Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, There's a passage in Daniel chapter 2 that Nebuchadnezzar speaks. It's one of my favorite passages to use as a call for worship. One of our calls for worship that we sometimes use in this church is actually from the mouth of Nebuchadnezzar, believe it or not. And, and, And yet, all indications are Nebuchadnezzar ultimately didn't change and his kingdom didn't ultimately change. He didn't lead Babylon in a great revival. We also know God has tremendous freedom with whom he can use. God prophesied using a donkey. Surely he can use Saul as well. I mean, he's at least got a mouth. I think it's tempting to think that this is an example of a person having a real spiritual conversion. I mean, we see that language of new heart. Who uses that language of new heart? And then, but sometimes people look at a passage like this, they say, look, this is an example of having real salvation and then losing that real salvation. I don't think that this is an example of that at all. Everything we see in the life of Saul is superficialities. It isn't that the Spirit doesn't rush upon Saul. It's not that the Spirit didn't really do this. But the truth is, those sorts of things don't mean someone is born again. It doesn't mean that someone is truly a child of God. We have to get away from looking at the external things, the appearances, even the manifestation of spiritual gifts. Think about this. Jesus says that on the last day, there will be people who say to him, Lord, Lord, I cast out demons in your name. And yet Christ will tell this person who cast out demons in the name of Jesus, I never knew you. Think about that. To these, so these, these supernatural gifts, when they happen, they are not an absolute sign of someone's election, someone's salvation. The whole book of 1 John is taken up with this question of, how do I know I'm really saved? How do I know I'm really in Christ? And John never in that book says, you know, you could just show some spiritual gifts. John doesn't do that. So these, these signs that, Samuel, that, that Saul shows forth, these are not 
signs of election or salvation. They are temporary things that can be given and they can be taken away. And what this means is that God used them to accomplish his will. This is certainly what he seems to do with Saul. The true test of spiritual rebirth isn't an apparently sincere profession at the moment, and it isn't even these ecstatic gifts that so many think are important. The true test, and this is what John tells us in 1 John, the true test of real spiritual conversion and change is the fruit of our lives. Finally, notice this, that when Saul returns home, he speaks to his uncle. And when his uncle asks him what happened, he totally omits everything substantial that happened. He, he keeps his anointing a secret. Now, I have to, I'm just going to be very transparent with you. Uh, when I don't understand something, I will just tell you. And, and I have tried to understand why Saul would do this. I've tried to understand why Saul would keep this to himself. I have looked at multiple commentaries thinking maybe someone has some special insight into why Saul would keep this to himself. Maybe at least there's an opinion about whether or not this is sinful that he didn't tell his uncle this. Uh, he doesn't lie to his uncle. He doesn't He just doesn't tell him everything. And that's not the same thing as lying. The text never shows him being commanded to keep it a secret by God. But it it seems like this may even fit a pattern that we see in Scripture. Think about David. David gets anointed later on. And his anointing will be kept a secret for quite a long time as well. And, And I don't think that this is sinful on Saul's part. I'm not persuaded that it's sinful anyway. I mean, I pick on Saul a lot, and I'm going to keep picking on him throughout the book. But, but I think this is just the way that God does these things. Part of the kingship is that the people don't know until they need to know. Uh, it's hidden until it's time for it to be revealed. One of our professors at RTS, Ben Glad, he wrote a book, and it was called Hidden But Now Revealed. And... I guess if I could boil down the message of his book, it would be something like this. If you look at the Gospels, you see the ministry of Jesus as something that was expected and hoped for. But then Glad is also very careful to say that there was something about Jesus' ministry in life that was new and unexpected. So Jesus is expected, and he's also unexpected. Uh, He is what they were looking for, and he's also not what they're looking for. Um, The truth about Jesus was hidden from people's eyes. Uh, Here he was. He he stood among them. He looked like them. He ate like them. He worshiped with them. He was one of them. But the rock bottom reality of who he was could not be seen. And so the truth of Jesus was hidden from them. They expected a Messiah. They expected Jesus. And yet he really wasn't what they expected. Saul is sort of the flip of this. They expected a king, and he was just what they wanted, and he was just what they expected. You know, he earned this name, asked for. Saul is what they asked for. In the coming weeks, we're going to discover this beautiful truth, and I hope you, I hope you see this. I hope you, you learn this. I hope you have already learned this in your own life, but we are never more blessed than when we get what we need. And we are often never more cursed than when God gives us what we think we want. Let me say that again. We are never more blessed than when we get what we need. 
And we are often never more cursed than what God gives us, what we want. Saul is what they want. Look for the Savior. The Savior who wasn't what we might expect. The Savior who had no appearance that we would be drawn to Him. The Savior who was rejected because He didn't measure up to what the people wanted and what the people expected. Let's pray. Our Father, You love us. We are Your people. We're the sheep of Your pasture. We thank you that your son, Jesus Christ, is the true and great shepherd. Would you give us eyes to see and to love the good that you have for us, even accepting from your hand those things that we might not have guessed that we really, truly need and want. You are our God, and you do know what's best. Help us to believe it and to love your own will for our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the truths that we see in this passage, truths that we see in Scripture, is that God's wisdom is greater than our wisdom. God knows what's best when we don't know what's best and what we need most. And so with that in mind, let's sing number 128. God moves in a mysterious way as we remember that God acts in ways we don't understand. And yet we have to trust his goodness. Let's stand.